0: You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast.
1: You're listening to episode 436, and I'm your co-host, Brittany Martin. I was back on the Rubber Duck Dev Show this week, but this time I brought Joshua Gastra, one of our product managers at Texas. It was supposed to be a battle royale of engineering manager versus product manager, but in the end, we had a great discussion about how to line up priorities. If you're interested in becoming an engineering manager or a product manager, this is a great episode to listen to. Thanks again to Chris and Creston for having me back on.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Rubber Duck Dev Show. I'm Chris. I'm Creston. I'm
1: Brittany. And
2: I'm Josh. And we are here for the Engineering Manager versus Prod Manager Wednesday night main event. All right, so we ought to have a lot of fun. We're going to talk a lot about the differences in those positions, kind of define what they are, and talk about more of the non-programmary parts of these things that go on. The first thing I want to kind of do for the viewers is to kind of have a definition from each of you, a kind of a short definition of what does engineering manager mean and what does product manager mean? I guess let's hear from you first, Brittany.
1: I agree with you, Chris. I think there can be so many different ways to define engineering manager. But to me, I feel like the engineering manager has three duties. The first is to make sure to prioritize and have the right person working on the right thing, setting deadlines getting that estimate and architecture in place, making sure design and product are in place. To me, engineering is one of the most expensive resources that you have. And so my job is to minimize any sort of wasted time there. So the second one is also being that person who's cross-functional. And so you're the one who's probably communicating with the different teams around deadlines, customers affected, release schedule, all those kinds of things. And then also part of that cross-functional part is hey, you know that feature that you wrote? It's doing really well and it made us a ton of money. Should probably tell the engineers, like I (laughs) want to complete that feedback cycle. Right.
2: Yeah, for sure.
1: And then the last one is mentorship. So I'm doing one-on-ones with all of these engineers and it's wild to me that I mentor and the manager of people that are crazy talented. They're able to write code in a way that I never will be able to write code. And so it's been definitely an imposter syndrome thing for me, yeah. but it's my job to make sure these very talented engineers know which track that they're on, whether or not they're going the manager track or they're going that IC track, just making sure that they feel supported and give them immediate feedback when they need to adjust how things are going. What is an IC track? Yeah. So the individual contributor track. And that's a good question, Creston, because I think for so long, companies didn't have this. We ended up with so many developers who were managers because they thought it was the only way to grow. And so I want to be so clear to my engineers that if you love to code and you want to code the rest of your life, it can be extremely lucrative and you can have a really fulfilling career.
2: Yeah. We have that at shift four too. You can do a management track or an IC track. That it's seems also to-
1: okay to change your mind because yeah. I've seen yeah. developers go down one track and they're like, uh uh-uh, uh, I need the switch.
2: So, Josh, product manager, what would you define that as?
3: Yeah, I'm kind of at the next, a lot of things. I'm trying to find that balance between the business aid, the customer need, and then what engineering can practically do in a period of time that delivers some value. So, I'm always trying to find like the largest and most incremental value we, we can deliver at a certain time, Texas specifically, also kind of do a lot of other things we work with providers to get messages delivered. That's almost another stakeholder to take into account because they have requirements around regulations and spamming and all sorts of stuff to taking all that into account and then making sure the product is good at the end of the day for the users, that the features work the way they want it to. I think that's how I would define the role I do right now.
2: Okay, cool. So, really, kind of, Brittany, you're a bit closer to the engineers, and Josh, you're a bit closer to the customers, but there's a lot of overlap between there. And especially those two, what kind of what I'm hearing is that you guys end up having to work a lot together in the middle of that to make sure things are functional for the other sides of your respective priorities.
1: Yeah, I would agree to that, Chris. And you say that Josh is close to the customer. He's close to everybody. And that kind of lends well into like how Josh came into this role because it's an interesting one. And it kind of explains like how he is able to communicate with everybody so well.
2: Yeah. And I want to hear this because I know it's the communication skills in a product manager
3: position are tricky. So how did you get to this? So I started at Texas as a sales person. So the BDR... SBR and then moved into being a small business accounting executive somewhere about two years into being in sales. Like, it was my, my first jobs out of college. I looked at my life and was like, I'm not happy doing this. It wasn't the company, it was the role. I was like, I'm do something else. I'm a builder. I like to make things and work with my hands and that sort of thing. Well, I didn't know what it was. I knew I liked the company and the culture and the product. So I was able to transition to our support team. In the support team, the customer success, like we did everything from like account provisioning and creation to troubleshooting, finding bugs, and then reporting on engineering. I grew into a tier three support engineer role and actually reported to Brittany on the engineering team. And that was a lot more like kind of a filter between engineering and the customers and the support team and the sales team as well. So it's kind of the start of this. And from there, I was like recreating bugs, making sure they actually were Started to get really familiar with our API and was could answer any question about our API and how to use it and got comfortable with that. And then almost a year ago now, I applied for a, a product manager role that was open at Texas, got the role and have been kind of doing that ever since there's a bit of a ramp up period. There where I was like, "It's an interesting position to be between like the support engineers, like, this is how the app works and it's broken or it's not. And then getting to go to the other side of the position and being like, this is how it should work and let's do it this way
2: adept at kind of translating between english and programmer
3: yeah it's funny because you want to be specific without saying like what exactly to do it's like defining the problem and being like it's not working this way and this is why this is like the context of what the customers are trying to do and that's why that behaving this way doesn't work because like you hit this one spot and i can't manage this many conversations or something like that like, translating it from Customer needs and they don't really know what they want or need they just it doesn't work it doesn't work and being able to put yourself in their shoes and be like this is what you want to do right and they say oh yeah that is and then communicate that yeah translate it to engineering
2: so you kind of take the why from the customer turn that into a what hand that to engineering and say you tell me how
3: yeah exactly so i'm taking the and getting to the root of it too because there's a common request kind of think of like an example, but you know, like we want this, we want this. I'm like, but what problem are you trying to solve there? And finding that and being like, well, would this work for you as well? Because like to do that thing and Jerry is telling me it would be a three-month project. We can do this other thing and get you a solution that works. It's like your problem is you don't want to text people that you've in the last week. There's something else we can do here besides redoing the way we do the whole app.
1: Right. Yeah. I think a good example would be like, people aren't replying to me, people aren't replying to me. And so the request might come into product as let me text more people at once. And meanwhile, that's not the actual solve. It's how can we help them send better messages
3: or it's, Oh, you're texting landlines and that's why nobody's fine.
1: Well, yeah, that that's not good. Now, one thing that we really miss Josh for that you didn't touch on Josh is when Josh was in tier three support, he was also our QA and he's one of the best QA I've ever worked with. And so while I'm so glad Josh is a PM now, we have not hit that bar again on QA. Just Josh is really, I don't know, he's really stringent and picky and he's really good about recreating a flow that a customer would do. And I think it's really hard to teach people that because... He was so well-versed in what the customers were doing because he spent so much time in customer support and sales doing demos. There's nobody at the company, literally nobody at the company, literally the person who started the application that knows the application better than Josh, which is really hard to find.
2: So he's the top tier toy breaker.
1: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
3: Yeah. And it was fun for me, too, because like, you get kind of obsessive and you go in and you do it over and over again. Yeah. So... Thank you. And I have fun doing
2: it. That's awesome. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you guys about, because I think this is kind of important for some of the junior engineers that watch the show, junior devs who are trying to figure out, well, where is my career going to go and what kind of things should I be concentrating on? So what are the differences in skill sets that you two have that kind of makes you the engineering manager and you the product manager? Where do the skill sets diverge there?
1: I mean, I talked about how I'm rusty at coding, but technically I can write code. I can write backend code. I do manage the front end team. So I am managing a set of developers where I don't understand the code that they're writing, but I understand enough of their workflow and I understand like their commit messages and whatnot. And I understand their tooling because we're very heavy into GitHub that I'm able to manage them effectively I've been a product manager in the past. And so I have an opinion on why I can't be product now, but I'll let Josh go next.
3: Yeah. So I think it's different. Obviously yeah, I can't write code. I can read it with a low level of confidence. Like Brittany's used to this of uh, I'll go look at something, look at an API, like something we want to integrate with. And I'll be like, I think this is how we would do it. Or this is what we want to do, or this is possible. So that's like the extent of my ability to interact with code. But then it's a lot more of the like, understanding the customer, putting yourself in the customer's shoes, taking the business stuff into account. Like I'll think of stuff and be like, that just seems really expensive, or I wouldn't buy that, or that's not compelling. I have no experience in marketing, but I'm like, we can't sell this. There's nothing compelling about this feature. Why would we do that? So I go very broad and I kind of check in with different departments. Like, does this make sense? Like, does my thinking line up here? A lot of times they say no. It's actually this way. Then I can take that back, and I'm not going to call it calculation, but whatever's going on between my ears, and trying to write down, and then yeah, come back to engineering with a different thing than we thought we would have never done.
1: Yeah, I think I struggle with the fact that my first answer to everything is no, and Josh's first answer is let me look into it. There's definitely a difference there because I am so defensive about the engineer's time. That sometimes I struggle with the enthusiasm of a really great product idea and being like, this is an amazing idea. This is going to make such a huge difference. What can we clean off the deck in order to make this happen? I kind of rely on Josh to bring that enthusiasm from the go to market team over at, to engineering.
2: I think that's kind of an important point, too. And that seems to be a common thread through most of these type of team environments where you've got a product manager side and you've got an engineering side, the engineering manager tends to be very protective of the engineering time and the product manager tends to be very protective of the customer's wants. And sometimes that can cause some conflict. And that's kind of where I think where the meat of this show happens is that's where the differences in syntax and priorities of what you guys do can sometimes not align correctly.
1: This episode is brought to you by Scout APM. Scout is an industry leader in application performance monitoring. This low overhead tool is designed to help Ruby developers find and fix performance issues. Scout's intuitive UI and tracing logic ties bottlenecks to specific lines of code and allows you to quickly pinpoint and resolve issues like n plus one queries, slow database queries, memory bloat, and more. Scout's unlimited seats and applications allow teams to collaborate without additional costs and makes it easy for any member of your team to become a performance pro. See for yourself why developers worldwide call Scout their best friend with a free 14-day trial, no credit card needed. As a special offer for Ruby on Rails listeners, Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. Learn more at scoutapm.com slash rubyonrails.
2: So... Can you think of times when you don't have to give very specific examples, but times where you haven't been able to see eye to eye and how do you work that?
1: Well, that's a good question. Let's break some NDAs that we haven't signed, Josh. Um. (laughs) (laughs) So this is something that we've been struggling with this week that I've had to rely on Josh to help me with. I have the majority of the developers working on features in an ideal world. That's what's happening, right? You have your engineers allocated. They're working on roadmap items you're good. And then you have a couple noisy customers that are important to you, raise the alarm that they need to have this, like to them, the bug that they see means that the app is unusable to them. So like, what do you do as the engineering manager in terms of, do you bargain with product to say, Hey, I want to put this roadmap item down. You tell me is this customer more important than this roadmap item? And so that's something that I haven't figured out and I'm still trying to work on.
3: I'm in the same boat I haven't figured out either because I'm selfish of what I want to see built, but then I also just have to take into account, oh no, like they pay us a lot of money every month. This is a big problem to them. And then it's a big problem to, we have a company value about customer centric and you have to go back and remember that. And I think that's the part where the product manager is closer to the customer and that need and trying to be sympathetic there and have that understanding. But also being selfish, just being like, no, we need this feature done.
1: There is circumstances where I do try to scam Josh. I want to be super clear <laughs> about that. I definitely try to scam Josh. This is my number one scam. <sighs> so we will kick off a project. We'll go over all the requirements. We'll generate the story. So our developers write their own stories. Mm -hmm. So we'll come up with the story titles. They write their own stories, which is I think kind of unique for the developers write their own stories versus product having to sit there and meticulously write them all out. And then I will miss a story and then I'll tell Josh, oh, we'll do that in a later phase. And then he and I will argue whether or not that's going to happen or not. (laughs) So (laughs) I think the struggle for us is I'm always trying to get that MVP lower and lower And I also struggle with the fact, I'm not a big bang person. I don't like to create this like massive feature and then just release it all once. But I get the marketing does. They want the press release. They want the big shout. But to me, I want to slowly trickle my stuff out. I want to see if I'm getting any errors logged. So I struggle a little bit because I feel like product agrees with me but they also have the stakeholders of sales, marketing, customer support that wants to see it go out all at once with it like very well documented and polished. But me, I just kind of want to get it out there just to slowly trickle it out and see how it does. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Do you have
0: early access to feature customers or any kind of program like that, that you could leverage certain customers that have raised their hand to say, hey, I want to see new features. And that way you could do your testing that way within through like feature flags or something and then go for the big bang when they've hit it at least somewhat. Do you have any kind of program like that?
3: We have in the past for certain features. I think we're coming back around to having something like that.
1: So- We've had like beta councils in the past. I think the struggle for us is that the people that we would want to put on a beta council tend to be people who buy the software, but they don't use the software. And so what we need is like those power users, to your point, Kristen, like people that their entire workflow is using our software. Those are the people we want to get to, but those people are hard to reach sometimes. And so I think having that council is great. It's just getting the right people on it and getting them to actually try the new feature. There's a little bit of weirdness too. If you reach out to your beta council and you're like, feature flag, this new feature. And they're like, I don't want to try it. And you're like, why did I build this? (laughs) uh (laughs) But then you release it to the general customer base and it's well-loved. Yeah. Sometimes it's like rolling the dice.
0: Well, presumably some of these features came from a request from customers, would these potentially, I mean, if it's a new customer, you can't really do this, but if they're an existing customer who's looking for a feature, I mean, you could grant them access to it. So you just
1: asked a really insightful question. You assume that most of our product features come from our customers. Yeah. They really don't. Would you agree, Josh? I feel like we're always trying to push to do things that they haven't considered. And then once we put it out there, they're like, oh, have I gone on without this? But I'm curious if you would agree with that.
3: Yeah, there's definitely some educating the customer aspect there. Like some of it is stuff they just don't know is possible. Larger campaigns and stuff. Where like one customer will come and ask for it and push it, and it'll be this weird like beta testing thing where we're working with a single customer to figure it out like mm-hmm. large sending larger campaigns, and then we've rolled that out across the platform and become really successful. So. I think we are pushing the customers in a lot of ways. Not to say we're not responsive to, like their needs and wanting certain things. Their requests are usually more incremental. They're like, we want the Chrome extension to work with this page, or we want to have this feature in the Chrome extension as well, that sort of thing. But I think going back to the original questions like a beta council, oh, we're getting better at getting insights into our platform and how it's being used, and finding those power users. It's like we know the ones that complain a lot. <laughs> like. They complain, which is great. Like they tell us a lot, and like it's not like complaining, complaining. It's hey, this is working again, which is great. But we want to find those like really power user, power users that we can go to and say, hey, we noticed you use this a lot beyond just sending a lot of messages because well, we send a lot of messages. But coming back around full circle is like when we go ask our like the go to market team is like who can we talk to? Who should we talk to? That'd be good to talk to, or that we have a good relationship with. It's people that they want to have more rapport with, not necessarily people that are like the best for us to talk to in terms of finding new features and making the product better, important customers and everything, and make them happy, but not necessarily those power powered users.
2: So I had asked a little earlier about where your skill sets kind of diverged, but now I'm kind of interested where do your skill sets align and overlap that help you work together?
1: Oh, that's so easy. It's sarcasm. (laughs) There are very few people as sarcastic as Josh and I. (laughs) But I mean, in some ways, that's part of it. Commiserating over maybe a not great deploy or commiserating over some messy release notes or something like that. So there is some camaraderie. We consider engineering and product one team. So Josh is technical enough that we can explain a problem to him. And it's nice because I've worked with a lot of product managers in the past that aren't technical at all. And Josh is able to understand. And Josh is really good about making quick decisions. I hate sitting in decision-making hell. So like sometimes I just need to be unblocked. And Josh is really good at that. And it feels good. And so we have someone who's in that tier three position. And really, between the three of us, we can move quite quickly.
2: So, I'm curious on your teams, how much time do you spend actually working together and collaborating as opposed to a lot of product manager engineering teams kind of here's the five minute handoff meeting. I'm transferring the
3: knowledge to you. Go. I would say it's a lot, not necessarily on like calls. We have kickoff calls, we go over it, hand it off. But then we use a shortcut for our project management, and I get Tagging things all day, commenting back and forth on them. It is very much an asynchronous, but also kind of the same time. So, it's usually been like five minutes to an hour. I don't have a ton of meetings back to back, but you know, like it is very much collaborative. And hey, we noticed that a million questions come up when you're building something and like it feels good to collaborate and like we're flexible enough to like, hey, let's jump on a quick call and talk about this.
1: Yeah. A common one is like an engineer will start to dig into something and we all agree here. It is very easy to look at something and say, this is going to be really hard. And then you find out it's really easy and that's a big win. But also the flip side happens, doesn't it? Like where you're like, this bug looks like it's going to be incredibly easy to solve. And then you get into there and you're like, oh, <laughs> I'm 20 commits in and this, this is bad. This is framework level bad. And so that's where we end up collaborating with Josh being like, how important is this? Can we cut this from the requirements? That's where he's really key. I'm in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So I'm an Eastern. Josh is in Portland, which is in some ways considered Pittsburgh's like sister city, which I love. So he's specific time zone. And so what often happens to me is I will log in in the morning and at 9am, I'll get a message from Josh and I will have a brief moment of of being like, Josh, what the hell? Why are you up this early? And I realize (laughs) he's scheduled a Slack message for me. So that way I, during my quiet time can be effective and get him what he needs. And it like really... of helps that relationship that makes sense
2: yeah i think it's important to be respectful of each other's time and do things like that that's a really cool idea josh
0: just so i understand so when a particular engineer when they talk about their boss they're probably talking about you Brittany. is that correct
1: Yes, all the engineers currently report to me. I don't think that will be indefinite. We're currently hiring two engineers. We're hiring for a senior backend engineer. <laughs> There's my shameless plug. You get to hire a junior backend engineer to mentor. But anywho, so that would bring me up to fifteen, which is probably the breaking to, point. Yeah, that's the breaking point, right? Like my load balancer is just—it's going to fall over. So, yeah. But the eventually, communication
0: that Josh was talking about that. Presumably, developers speak to you directly, like all communication doesn't get right. Exactly.
1: That's a really good point, though, Kristen. because you have to trust the person. We talk about wasting engineering resources. We have to trust the person that they're reaching out to is going to give them an accurate answer. And so the question is, how do you scale me? How do you scale Josh? We're growing out the product team. And Josh has been at Texas. How long now, Josh? Has it been five years?
3: Over four. I don't know. Over four. So close to
1: five. We're going to prematurely celebrate five because that's my French vanilla fantasy. (laughs) But, you know, as we bring on more product managers who are not as knowledgeable about the product, how do we get the developers to trust them? Because they're going to be wrong sometimes. Or they're just going to have a different opinion than Josh. And so how do you deal with that?
4: Hi, everyone. It's Brian, your co-host. And to me, connecting developers and startups has been the best job in the world. When I founded Mira Placement in 2006, I didn't know anything about recruiting other than what I had learned while growing my software agency. My developer colleagues really disliked recruiters. And since developers are just about the nicest people I know, I thought, what could recruiters be doing so badly that causes my good-natured friends to despise them so much? And it turned out a lot. Their horror stories included tales of jobs and companies that didn't exist, of recruiters not sharing the name of the company they were recruited for, and frequently, the anonymous, well-funded tech startup, whose job description sounded a lot like a word salad of technical buzzwords. I learned about having your resume spammed out to dozen of companies without your consent. I heard of last minute salary and title changes after many hours of invested time and in interviewing. And I have to admit, when I listened to all of these tales, I couldn't help but think, it could be so much better. So I gave it a shot. And thanks to you, 16 years later, it is better. You've shown that radical transparency works and that for developers and startups, pursuing long-term relationships at the expense of short-term transactions is always the right call. Together, we've made a difference at hundreds of startups and seeing careers blossom and startups change the world has been a great privilege. And I am so thankful to you for giving me this seat and to Brittany for sharing this podcast. So I just wanted to say thank you for allowing me to help accelerate your career and your startup and to know that I'm rooting for you in the next step of your journey. Thanks.
2: Like right now, my current position, I'm sitting on the engineering side. And I have a product manager that I interface with. And we actually have several product managers because we have a lot of different product areas. It's one suite of products, but there's a product manager for each little bit because it's such a large company. But one of the things that I often find myself doing, and this is even not just at this job, but even when I was in the small business world and didn't have as much hierarchy going on, is that on the engineering side, when product would come to me with, hey, they're complaining about this, or they want to do this, or we want to make this change, a lot of times what I really needed to do is go back to product and say, why? Why are you doing this? Because... What I would find is product would identify, hey, we should make this change in the product because this will solve the problem. And engineering says, but if you tell me why you're doing that, I may actually have a better solution because I know the back end of it a lot better. Does that kind of stuff happen with you guys?
3: Absolutely. I think trust, I'm glad that we're getting up because one of the things I think I forgot to say earlier is building that trust between all the different stakeholders. Because like when you tell go to market team. Later, they need to trust you are going to do it, but and I always try to get a lot of context why I made a decision. I say yes, we need to do this because this is the workload. This is why, and I do that to give the, like, help, the engineers like trust that like there's a reason behind it. But then also there's been plenty of times where I say this is why and this is a situation, and the different solutions come out or the suggestion of oh, could we do this? here and this over there and get the same result and i'm like oh yeah that's actually a great idea again trying to avoid the defining the solution and just define the problem and work together to find the solution
2: where do you find the difficulties in being able to synergize between your don't use that word but do you guys ever find things that are hard to synergize on that you just can't make the connection and you have to figure out a way to do something else.
1: We're starting to go down that path where we're like how much of the roadmap do we save for tech debt? Tech debt is something that you always need to think about and that you yep. want to pay off. So far, product's been amenable to that just because we have deadlines, like this thing's going to get deprecated. If you don't let us work on it, then you know the app's going to go offline and nobody wants that. But yeah, for the most part, we tend to agree, but we're not in a situation yet where the engineers are coming up with their own features and saying like, this is something that I want to work on, but I'm starting to see that boil up more. And so having their work be deprioritized, like their ideas be deprioritized over what products is saying would be an interesting situation. But for the most part, we're pretty good. What do you think, Josh?
3: Yeah, I agree. I think it's going to start coming up. We're a startup, and we've had so many things to work on. Like, not saying that the app is awful, but you know, there's so many improvements you could make, and they would all be great. And it's now as we start to focus on certain things more, start to become more like a push pull. Like, notifications is one thing that like really needs to be redone, and that takes a lot of product effort, a lot of engineering effort. And I agree with that and see that. But then when it comes down to the roadmap, and you're like, all right, what are we going to build next? It doesn't sell any software notification. Our notifications are good enough. And I would love them to be better, but. You need like, a brochure story. Yeah. It, yeah. And meanwhile, I think it's taking up minor things. Notifications take up more and more resources on the back end. So eventually something needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an example of the conflict, isn't that? Wait.
1: I had an interesting conversation today because we just onboarded our senior UX designer. And so UX is considered part of our product team. I'm curious how you all usually do that. This is new for me to actually have dedicated UX designers. It's nice. It's (laughs) certainly nice when you're managing front-end developers to have UX. But she said to me... We had this conversation about how the two of us were going to work together. And she said to me, if I ever come to you and want to go outside of Material UI, which is the component library that we use for React, she's like, if I want to do something custom are you going to let me do that? And I was like, are you going to justify it? And she's like, what do you mean by that? And I'm like, you're going to need to justify it in order for us to agree to like a custom component. Is it because it's sexy? Is it because you wanted to work on the design? Is it because you think it'll provide a better user experience? Because she's brand new coming into an app, I feel like UX is very similar with marketing. You tend to come into a new company and you're like, I want to redo everything like <laughs> because you want it to be yours, you know, you yeah. want your brand on it. And so we don't have that struggle with product, but I could definitely see that struggle coming from UX.
2: Yeah. That's a tough nut to crack. And engineers have that a lot too, especially the kind of project management type engineers. They get into that. I want to use my tools that I was using last time and bring them over here. Just replace all your crappy tools. Cause they're not as good as my tools.
1: Oh, I'll tell you what. I do have some engineers that I onboarded this year. They come in and they open pull requests and they're like, I worked at this big rails company and we had these tools that made things easier. I'm just going to copy them in here. And I'm like, cool, free, smart. You go ahead and commit your tools in." But you're right though. We do have issues where new people come in and they want to bring their entire expensive tool set in. Right. And you're like, it sucks to be that person being like, that's not what we do here.
2: And I'm all for, Hey, bring your new blood, your new thoughts, your new ideas, help us get better. You're here because you're smart. Let's utilize that. But balancing that between, yeah, but (laughs) we're not going to throw out all of our tools just because you think this one is better, unless you have some serious justification for it. Do you run into that much on the product side, Josh?
3: Not really. So... We have someone new starting soon. I'm currently the only product manager. So we haven't onboarded anybody new. So I guess we'll find out soon. But yeah, like I think we've had a lot of improvement recently.
1: What about the internal names for applications? I thought that was a funny thing. We have those internal names for applications that we don't want to be customer facing and kind of had a little bit of scuffle about whether or not we should be doing that anymore, right?
3: Yeah. And I guess that's where I had to kind of be empathetic to an outsider coming in is like thinking like, okay, I'm familiar with it because I've been here for four years. I watched it grow, but there's also certain situations where like those names are useful in the sense that they are funny names, but they do differentiate between different basically apps that work together to create the experience. We've run into that, but I guess I see that more of the human nature than an issue of process or anything that's insurmountable.
1: I agree. Chris and Creston, do you have internal names or do you have fun <laughs> nicknames for applications You know, inside? Because to me, in some ways, like that brings culture because there's always a reason that you named it a certain way. I'm always looking for ways <laughs> to make people feel included and in the know because that leads to retention, doesn't it?
2: Well, let me tell you a little bit about a cautionary tale from that. When I started at this company, I actually ended up having to go into Figma and draw myself a diagram to put all the various names that matched in the different boxes because the customer called it this thing, product called it this thing, engineering called it this thing, and they're all internal things. And the real name of the product is this. And I was like, I don't know what the hell is going on here. We get on meetings and you guys are just slinging names around and I don't know what you're talking about. So I actually had to make a diagram and put it on the wall in front of me so I could follow along in conversations. So I agree with you, Brittany, that there's this cultural tribe building thing with these internal inside baseball terms and things like that. And that can be useful, but you got to be a little careful with it because it makes onboarding a lot more difficult. <laughs>
1: That's true. And you're talking to a person who doesn't have to talk to customers. Now Josh does. And so he has to remember to switch between the two because that's just like translating from French to English rapidly back and forth. And so I like it because it almost provides a shorthand because there are many times that Josh and I literally just talk in shorthand. We are the company of acronyms. I imagine every company says this, but yeah. we have so many acronyms that like if you don't know what we're talking about or you don't know the short code to all what we're doing, it can be very confusing. And honestly, sometimes you can get so much weight out of just an emoji reaction between the two of us. I'll be like, Josh, da, 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 And he'll be like, thumbs up. And I'm like, cool, that's all I needed. Bye. It's I'll important be, to have that.
0: My organization, I mean, have employees, but my organization is not big enough to have that type of culture, or have that thing built in. But when I go to... The customers of my app, they're slinging the acronyms all around. Or if I'm going on a consulting gig or one of my biggest customers, there's, oh, the whiz bang fadoo and the fibby <laughs> hibbits and whatever else. And I, at times I just got to, okay, what is this thing you're talking about? <laughs> so I think it's the nature of organizations to kind of come up with these abbreviations and shorthands.
2: I think we should limit our shorthands to PEPCAC and ID10T, and then we're done. And anybody in the comments who can tell me what those mean. Okay, I'll spoil it for you. PEPCAC, problem exists between chair and keyboard.
1: Oh, yes, yes, yes. (laughs) And ID10T,
2: just write that ID10T down on a piece of paper. You'll figure that one out.
1: Love it. So
2: the internal stuff is important. And I mean, you want to have your own culture, your tribe building, because that helps build the camaraderie and the interfacing with people but you also want to be careful about making it the barrier to entry into your culture so high that people can't get in there. And I think that's important even cross team too, because I know that for us, with my product team, there's sometimes where they'll have their own jargon and engineering has their jargon and
3: we'll get in a meeting and we'll be like, wait, which thing are you talking about again? That's a fair problem, right? If you're building a new thing, it's like, we're teams that build things. And we wouldn't have jobs if it was very easy. And like, that's why you have 10 different names for something like working on a feature now. And we did a broad benchmarking. And that's why we always have always features or names for this one thing that does the same thing. And that's exactly how it happens. And like, I think recognizing that, but then also finding a process of how we go back and define that before we start. We've had it happen to engineer build something and this name is in the code. And so we get to marketing and marketing is like, no, no, this works with SEO a lot better. And we're like, okay, cool. But like, you know, the engineers need to know that when you say widget A isn't working, it actually means go look at whatever part of the code that's called.
1: Brendan, you looks very frustrated right now. I am right so now. triggered right now because this absolutely <laughs> happens. And it because I usually am one of the first people to look at bugs. And so like immediately I'm going to the code and trying to figure out what's going on. And Josh is totally correct. That I have to translate, like what the marketing term ends up being, and we all know engineers don't like to name things, and so I often try to pawn it off on Josh, and so Josh and I will agree on it, and he's totally right that when we get to that actual release, they'll be like, "Oh, it's time to rename," and I'm never going to put in the work with engineering (laughs) to rename all those classes. Like that is far too many R spec tests. Like just not going to do it. I always say I'm going to do it (laughs) later. Do I? No.
0: There were certain visible portions of my product and I had my own internal names that I had come up with them for everything. And then the customer said, well, we really wanted to say this. We really wanted to say this. And another one said this. I was like, all right, customization all around. You just, internally, it's called this. And you can change this little box to change it whatever you want it to be.
1: Everyone's been much happier. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. So basically you gave them a form object that they're able to update that and it just translates everywhere, but you're able to keep your code to be the same. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. So, you so it's do. like,
0: and it also appeals to different use cases because if you're dealing with parents, it can say parents or if it's student, cause I come from colleges and universities serving them, or it's, if it's for a student, it's a student type of project, you could name it students instead of calling it, I don't know, guests or attendees or whatever it was. So
1: we had an interesting situation where our marketing team owns the customer facing website, you know, the marketing website, which I think is ideal. You don't want engineering owning that. Like I am a big yeah, fan. No. <laughs> don't ever want to write a CMS ever again. No, thank you. Not today, Satan. But they did a completely different rebrand to the marketing website. And I was like, it looks great. You're not expecting us to bring that into the product, right? And they're like, no, no. Next quarter. Next quarter. We would like you to bring in the marketing adjustments. It's just like... <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> you know what? My front-end developer knew it was coming. I was in denial, but he knew it was coming. Now, wait, what are they going to be merging? Or the, what yeah, is the, so desire the marketing to website has like new fonts and colors and logos. So and they, they want to
0: apply that to the... Right, that bingo. type of facelift yeah. to the product. It's Okay, all right, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
1: it's not horrible. It's not horrible, but to me, it's unplanned work. So it's just factoring it in. There. Yeah. Well, they planned it. I remember so yeah, should, had,
2: should, <laughs> there should be time that they have accounted to say, "All right." I remember as an engineer walking down the hallway past the marketing office, and if their door was closed, I always got a sinking feeling in the bottom of my stomach, going, "Oh shit! Next week there's going to be some hell to pay. I'm going to have all kinds of front end work to do, and it's not going to be pretty."
1: Have you all been in the situation where you've had to be like the sales engineer? There are times, not often. This used to happen more in the past. Josh and I would get called onto a call where they were trying to convince somebody to buy the software. Have you ever been in that position as a salesperson? Well, I am the salesperson, so... Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the guy who
2: does the demo, so there you go. He better have been in that position or he doesn't have a company anymore.
1: So, Creston, do you do a live demo for everybody who wants to buy the software? Or are you sure. at like the... Yeah. Okay, so you won't record it and just <laughs> hand it off.
0: I have recorded it. I offer it for, you know, sign here. And then you can take a look at the pre-recorded demo. But people want to talk to someone live once they're serious about buying the product. So
3: because I'm like, their use case is so unique and their own, yet also... And it's just uh, a yeah.
0: level of additional trust. Hey, here's yeah. the person I've been working with. I can see their face. I can talk to them. I can ask all of our questions. And the meetings I have are never less than five people because colleges and universities,
4: it's a lot lot of of committees and getting together.
0: Right. So there's a lot of getting together and planning. All right. Is this solution going to work for us or not? So the dollar amount is a little bit higher than your typical one user SaaS product. So it's justified to be able to do some of that.
1: Do you have any demo hacks, anything that you picked up along the way you're like, I can't. Do I'm a demo probably not this. that
0: affected. I wouldn't ask. ask <laughs>
1: <laughs> I only say because Josh is the best demo in the land, and so putting it out there. Josh gives a really mean demo. So much so that we used to have every new employee who onboarded get a demo from Josh, and then we finally got around to recording it. But the annoying <laughs> thing is, engineering keeps adding features that product wants, and so that demo keeps changing. So bloody engineers. I know. (sighs) Keep shipping software,
2: it's annoying. Uh, Evolving things, how dare they? Uh, But I don't know if Chris has
0: ever been involved in...
2: Yeah, I actually used to... Well, I mean, when I was CTO, I did a lot of talking to clients. I did way more of that than any actual technology stuff (laughs) at that point. But the reason I was there is to be the technical part of the sales team. I usually wasn't doing like cold calls or initial conversations, but when they started saying, yeah, we want to buy, but we have a lot of questions about how this is going to work. I'd be in on the calls going, okay, well, this is how this is. And this is how this is. And
0: that's essentially what my demos are. When it gets to that point, that's when the live demo happens. Got the it. point at which Chris would be brought in yeah. when he was in his position. See,
1: I can't talk to customers because if I get a ticket, my first instinct is no. But if I talk to the customer, I want to say yes. And sometimes you get really excitable and collaborate with a customer. And you're like, yeah, I absolutely want to build that. You hang up and you're like, what did I just agree to? Right. And like, I didn't even tell product I was going to do this. That's not good. <laughs> like, so you want to end the call happy, you know, or sometimes you just want to end the call and agreeing to it ends the call.
0: If you sign on the dotted line, these features can be yours. <laughs> right. Exactly.
2: Yeah. And we used to have to be careful with that with engineers I just want to throw out there, when I say I was CTO, that sounds a lot bigger than it actually is. It wasn't that big of a company. So that's like an engineer for a regular company. But we had to be careful with engineers because almost every time that we got somebody who wasn't used to dealing with sales side stuff, which I had gotten used to dealing with, engineers will agree to almost anything. I can do that. I can do that. Yeah, I can do that. I can do that.
1: Because they want to feel good. They want to feel but, confident. Yeah. So and, they and they probably the can customer. do
2: that. Exactly. That's the thing. They can do it. But, but, they, but they don't understand that time. what the customer hears is, I'll have it done next week. Correct. <laughs> so,
1: And what I hear as engineering mm-hmm. manager, I have to maintain what? Like-
2: exactly. It's not that it's a bad thing. I actually applaud the enthusiasm. It's just that you got to understand the psychology of customers and that if you say or allude to something, a lot of times they'll take that as
3: a contracted promise. We had that say we were doing customer interviews with a new feature we're looking to build. And I don't think they fully totally realized that the prototype we were showing them wasn't the app. It wasn't done yet. And they were talking about how this would do what their other of software is doing and how they could cancel that and the way they were talking about it very actively. And I had to be like, take it easy. We might build this. We want your input on if This one or this <laughs> one or this one is good to do. And they kind of like nod their head, and I hope they have not canceled that other piece of software.
2: Uh, (laughs) When engineers start being exposed to the customer side of things, because as you progress as an engineer, you eventually will start interfacing with customers to some degree. It's important to pay attention to how your salespeople talk to those customers and learn the psychology and the do's and don'ts of what you say. Because talking in your engineering team, talking internally, has very different implications than talking to a customer about the same thing. Engineers don't tend to think about, what are the costs involved in what I'm saying? Because engineers just like to build stuff. That's a cool idea. I want to go build that and tinker and play I with code. Some of the
0: experience, I think some of the experienced engineers.
2: <laughs> Are well, sure, but that's what I'm saying. It, it, once you get to the point of having to deal with the customers, that's when you start learning that. Wait, if I say I can do this, I better be
3: ready to do it tomorrow. Yeah, that's a tough thing. My approach when I'm on these calls, when I'm looking at the sales and the engineers, I kind of speak when spoken to. I never pipe up, and I'm like, oh we can do that they're going through their demo they're like oh or that very specific question can you do that maybe or depending on the situation or like yeah you can do it this way or yeah so i think that's kind of an approach i have of being like not putting my foot in my mouth and signing up for something that we probably won't do or can't do or won't do soon enough
2: when you're talking to a customer and talking to them about features and stuff How often do you actually bring in engineers before you start telling the customer and selling to the customer to ask the engineers, Okay, can we do this? What's the time frame? What's the impact on your
3: side? How much of that do you do? Yeah, I never set expectations without there's certain little things, let's say a new strategy for finding numbers on a page or something like that. I have an idea of how long it takes, but I still set the expectation of it'll take us a few days to do it when we have time to do it. That's kind of it. I'm very careful about that because I have made that mistake in the past of being like, yeah, that's not a big deal. And then Brittany's like, what?
1: He's totally right. I mean, we're in a unique situation at our company where every single customer has an account manager. And so we really kind of rely on them to manage those communications. But the account managers are far removed from engineering and product, And so it's hard. I think I mentioned this in the last episode I was on, but every single person in our company is in our engineering ticketing system, which is both wonderful and crazy dangerous. And so they might see a comment where an engineer says, this is going to be easy. I can knock this out, no problem. They might read it as we're going to do it tomorrow. So it's all <laughs> about managing those expectations and really being on top of what's escaping engineering and product and going outwards.
2: Right. So to kind of close this out, Josh, if you talk into to... Kind of junior folks out there who are just getting into their tech career and they want to pursue something like
3: a product manager role what would you say to them don't glaze over the product when i was in sales maybe that's why i was the salesperson i got really deep down into the details and i got really good at the product so i guess just like focus on the details of things i'm not going to say be a generalist and know everything but it can't hurt to learn a little bit more about something
2: And Brittany, if somebody's just getting into their tech career and they want to pursue something like team leadership or engineering management, what would you tell them?
1: Oh, good question. I think you want to start off with project management. So you want to look for opportunities where maybe a project within the company has been abandoned and you can volunteer to take it over. And it doesn't need to be technical. Say like your team had lunch and learns and they haven't been happening for a long time. Look for an opportunity to step in and take on some leadership just to make sure that that's something that's important to you. And as you advance in your technical career and you want to be a leader, look for mentorship opportunities also outside your company. I'm going to tout Andy Kroll's My First Ruby Friend. Look for those opportunities where you can help mentor other people in the community because that's going to make you a better leader. And there are so many spaces that we need leaders. So raise your hand and say, hey, who needs help?
2: Great advice from both of you. So I thank you both very much for being here and taking your time. This was a great conversation. I had a lot of fun with this. It's something that I'm really interested in and it was great to be able to talk to both sides at the same time, kind of compare and contrast. I was really interested in that. So thank you very much. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the
0: loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review
3: and thank you for listening.